reading of God's Word is from Luke 15, from verse 11 through the end, which holds before us, as we've just read, this parable of what is known as the prodigal son. Prodigal having to do with that which sends and leaves and uh, gets rid of most liberally. And we'll note that his prodigality is with reference to his sin. He's feeding liberally his wickedness. And as we've read, we might focus on a couple of verses to keep our attention. Notice in verse 11 and 12, the following, And he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. You'll notice as well that verse 14 mentions that he had spent all, and a further affliction arises, and he finds himself feeding and feeding uh, with swine. But it is, as we remember reading, that it is he comes to himself, verse 17, and resolves on returning to his father in humility to confess his sin and receive his father's blessing which he does. The father, however, flees to him and lavishes riches of kindness upon him, which then brings forth this response of the younger or the older brother, which murmurs, complains, and accuses the father of wickedness. All is summed up with verse 32. It was meet, that is, it was appropriate that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. The passage before us holds forth a number of layers, each which is worthy of our consideration. There are several, two of which are prominent. The first being this theme that has been touched on already with emphasis prior to parables, that there is cause for rejoicing when one repents, because it is the activity of God's grace bringing one who is lost to being found, or even as this adds with clarity, one who was dead is brought to life again. And so when we think of initial repentance, we ought to see it clearly as the activity of God. God is not the one repenting. He's not repenting in us but he is giving life unto a soul that is dead in order that it may repent. And this, of course, is the foundation for rejoicing. That's why in heaven there's pleasure and delight and rejoicing because it is a testimony of God's great grace. And we'll consider some of that this morning. But there's another layer that's prominent, and it is here first mentioned of the three parables Namely, the reproof unto those who do not rejoice over the repentance of others. And this is doubtlessly a direct reproof to the Pharisees and scribes, verse 2, who murmured. And we, Lord willing, hope to consider that theme next week as the Lord gives us opportunity. But just for help, you'll notice that this parable is wisely employed both to confirm what's already been provided us, that there is rejoicing over sinners who repent, and which reproves those who do not rejoice over those 
that repent. And so the text serves to explain why there is such rejoicing, while also showing why some do not rejoice over the same. And so we cover some familiar ground from the previous two parables, but we look particularly at what is emphasized in this parable itself. When we read, for instance, in verse 32, it was meat. The word meat has to do with it was appropriate, it was fitting, it was what is to be done. What is to be done when one is hungry? Well, they're to eat. It's appropriate. What is one to do when they're exhausted after a hard day's labor? They're to sleep. That's what's appropriate. What is to be done when two believers are joined in uh, wedlock? There's to be celebrating. It's appropriate. What's to be done when a dear and beloved saint has breathed their last? Well, there's to be lamenting of the loss to the church militant, and yet there's to be rejoicing in the saint entering into that glorious state of heaven. It's what is appropriate. And notice the language is emphasizing the same thing. It is appropriate, it is meet, it is fitting that we should make merry. What an interesting expression, that we should cultivate rejoicing. It's not just that we should be merry, but that we should purposely cultivate the rejoicing as well. There's to be an activity that's taking place. And you see it expressed, of course, by the Father in the parable. Because so soon as the Son returns, what does He do? He calls His servants, as is mentioned in verse 22, and He then cultivates the celebration of His Son returning. Bring forth the best robe and put it on Him. What a change has taken place. He who was covered with the mire and filth of outward and ceremonial and as a sign of his inward impurity is now clothed with that which signifies great blessing and put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. Why? For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. They just began. It wasn't what was ended. The feast goes on, which then elicits the response, as we'll consider, Lord willing, from the elder brother in due time. But notice this emphasis. There's something new in this parable. Previously, we've heard about that which was lost being found, both of the sheep and coin. But now there's a further clarification that which is lost is likened unto being dead. And that which is found is likened unto being made alive. And that's not without important insight as to the nature of repentance. Of course, the Christian's life, we ought to remember and emphasize, is a life of repentance. The Christian doesn't just repent at the beginning and then get on with the rest of life. The Christian is ever living a life of repentance. However, this looks at that initial repentance of one who is dead in his sins and is brought to life by God's grace to turn from his wicked works unto his God by grace. And this is particularly before us as the cause that brings forth the appropriate rejoicing over sinners repenting. And so we wish to consider this 
And we'll do so with three things. Firstly, seeing how in repentance there is the recognition of sin. This is no little point, though it is much neglected today. Secondly, seeing how there is the expression of the reality of repentance. What is the sign or signs, several of them, which marks out true repentance, as Paul indicates elsewhere, from false repentance? Well, there are several here. And thirdly, we'll consider the display of grace that is by repentance. How repentance is the display of the Lord's grace. And so these three things, the recognition of sins, the reality of repentance, and the display of grace, all which then should bring forth rejoicing in those who discern the same. Well, firstly then, notice how in repentance there is the recognition of sin. We ought to consider for just a moment how grievous the sin is that is recorded in this section. When it is that the younger, verse 12, of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. He's saying, give me my inheritance. That which you have labored for, which you have stored up, that I should receive at your death, I want now. Which is, in a very clear way, expressing that, Father, I don't care for you. I care for yours. I want what you give. And this, brethren, is what sin is clearly like. Sin is regularly looking at what God gives and saying, I want that. I want health and life and pleasure and riches and all of these things. I want to be one who escapes trial. I want one to be delivered out of problems. But I don't want God. And so the whole world is consumed by this pursuit. They're saying to God in so many actions, I want what you give, but I don't want you. Now notice what this one comes to do. We're told in in verse uh, 14 that he spent all. And so he uses all of this inheritance upon himself, and he goes and joins himself to a citizen after a famine arises, and he's found among the husks of the swine, and he came to himself. What an expression that is. That it reminds us that sinners in their impenitence, however much they think they're sound in their reasoning, are actually in blindness. They're seeing a mirage. They're following, as it were, an apparition and not a reality. They're going after the figment of their imagination instead of the reality of truth. And brethren, we ought to remember this, that today when you see gross and uh, abundant and scandalous sins committed with smiles upon those who do so, that they are following a lie. They are deceived and gladly so, following after the wickedness, it's interesting, isn't it, as the Scriptures tell us, of their vain imaginations. Not of the sound truth, but of what they're imagining. You know, there are things known as fairy tales, which clearly to all are set upon a fictional uh, foundation. So you have things that fly that don't fly. You have animals that talk that can't talk. And everyone realizes that the purpose of the author is not to say this is what's true, but to set a context by which another story or another matter may be 
manifested. Well, the problem in the world is that sin has so corrupted sinners, and sinners are so gladly corrupted by sin, that they follow after what is vain and false. Repentance brings about a coming to oneself. That instead of following that which was imagined, now there is a coming to truth. And notice what he realizes. He realizes his sin. He recognizes his sin. And there are a couple things in this section about sin that he realizes. He realizes sin's corruption. You can see the corruption all over. He is eating and drinking among swine. Now that's bad enough for our culture. If one were in the farm and were in the pit of swine where mud is frequent and the swine wallow and they're filthy and they stink and they're eating literally the leftover trash of those who own them and devouring anything, it's bad enough for our culture. But what's worse, of course, is that this Jewish young man is not only in such filth as we would esteem it, but is also in open rebellion against the ceremonial and judicial laws of Israel. He's among the unclean. He is casting off God's covenant, and he's embracing what is forbidden. Now, of course, we know of today that Peter, in seeing the vision that came from heaven, that these animals are no longer unclean. And so those things that were for the Jewish state are removed. We're permitted to eat pork and other such things. But that day had not yet come. And so Christ is helping us to see the corruption of sin. Sin is there seen. Notice, he takes his father's inheritance and he journeys, verse 13, to a far country. So he's not in the covenant community anymore. He's left the covenant. He's fled from the covenant. He's gone into what is strictly forbidden. And he's involved in all manner of filthiness. He's eating and drinking among swine. Which, by the way, is but an outward display of what's already taken place. Because notice verse 13, it says that he wasted all. That is, all the inheritance given. He wasted it all with riotous living we would say, scandalous living. And you get a little hint of it when the elder brother says in verse 30, this thy son hath devoured thy living with harlots. This is the point. His father had worked hard and made not only sufficient for himself, but he had a household, not only of sons, but of servants. He was a rich That's the point. And the portion that is now given to this younger son is serving to finance this younger son's scandalous, wicked behavior. He takes the money and he's hiring prostitutes. He's going off into the most wicked forms of sin. He's guilty of committing fornication and thus is guilty of the commandment that says, Thou shalt not commit adultery which is but an outworking of what is there implicit as well, that he is one who has cast off God. In going forth to this pagan and foreign country, in casting off the restrictions of God's requirements, he's casting off God. 
And brethren, we ought to see this as well in our own day. That when we see the outward scandalous behavior of second table sins, that is because of the casting off of the first table. And if we see an abundance of second table sins, we can be sure that there is an abundance of first table sins. He spent all of it. All of this was spent on nothing but sin. Now, there's much, as we said, by way of layers in this. And we can imagine the father's heartache in this. There's something implied as the son returns and it says that when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. It almost holds forth as if the father is there looking for and waiting, checking the horizon for his son as he realizes his son has entered upon wickedness. But as noted, this corruption of sin actually begins with the fountain of what is mentioned in verse 12. Give me the portion. What is he saying? He's saying, Father, I would rather have you dead that I can have what is mine than live without this money. And his whole desire, here's the point, what you see of scandalous behavior was actually already present in seed in his heart. He was just waiting the opportunity for the restrictions to be removed that he could give himself recklessly into the corrupting sins that are here mentioned. When you see someone fall into scandalous behavior, you ought not to ask, well, how did that come to pass? We shouldn't be scratching our heads saying with dumbfoundedness, you know, I just don't understand it. What's going on is the seed of sin is sprouting up abundantly. None of us wonder at the growth of weeds. We don't look at that and say, how did that happen? You know, in this, how did it come to pass? You know, anyone that has a flower or fruit garden, they don't sit there and say, I'm just befuddled by the fact that these weeds are growing and growing and growing. Because we realize in the world that is since the fall, that the Lord has said that thorns and thistles will grow up. And by the sweat of our brow shall we sow cultivate the fields. Well, in the fall, there's a worse curse, of course, and that is the corrupting influence of sin. This is to remind us that in our own homes, we ought to be praying fervently for ourselves, for our spouses, for our children, and so on, that the Lord would address the root of the matter, which is here before us. But also notice, not only the recognition of sin's corruption in coming to himself, but of sin's enormity. And you see in verse 18, when he comes to himself, he says, I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. This is important and instructive. There are many people who are ready to admit the sin against another person, but they are unwilling to admit that it's sin against God. They may pay lip service to it. They may say, sure it is. But we'll see here that with the recognition of sin, there is the display of the reality of repentance. And it begins by seeing that though there is a sense in which our sin is against others, it is preeminently against God. When it is that men come to themselves, as the expression is here, they see things ordered as they truly are. That my foul speech toward another, my sinful actions toward another, is but the outworking of rebellion against God. And this is 
tremendous. This is what makes sin so enormous in our conscience, that we have sinned against heaven. But brethren, notice this. He doesn't merely say, I've sinned against heaven. There's also the acknowledgement that sin is against others. And both of these are recognized. That sin is never in isolation. Sin is never something that doesn't impact others. It's something that does impact others. I've sinned against heaven and before thee in your presence. I've scandalized your name. I've brought shame upon your name. And notice how he expresses it when he comes to his father. He says, I've sinned against heaven and in thy sight. He acknowledges the scandal that he's committed not only against God in heaven, but against the parties that were surrounding him as well. And when sin is recognized by a penitent sinner, there is the willingness to go before all against whom this sin has been committed and own it. This is why, brethren, in public scandalous sin, there is to be public sincere confession and repentance. If it's public sin, there's not just sin against God. There's sin in the presence of others. Which scandal must be addressed? And so you see tremendous help in the passage before us. But what is really going on is Christ pointing out that this one has truly come to recognize sin. It can help us as we think of it. How do we know if we've recognized sin? There's a willingness to own it as sin before God and in the presence of those in whose presence we have sinned. And so you'll notice something. Verse 1 drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. Christ is implying something about them. They've come as those who have recognized their sin. They've come as those who have recognized they've sinned against God. And they're coming owning their sin in the presence of others. We see this particularly illustrated in Zacchaeus. When he comes to Christ with repentance and he confesses his sin and says, Look, if I've taken anything unlawfully from anyone else, I restore it. That's the point. Zacchaeus recognized his sin. He wasn't defensive. Well, you know, I was just trying to get what was mine, or I made a mistake. He's acknowledging and with an openness, ready to restore what was in his power to restore. When someone comes and says, I've repented, this is something to consider. Is there the recognition of sin before God and in the presence of those with whom or in the presence of whom the sin was made known? Is there an acknowledgement of the corruption of sin, of the enormity of sin, or is there lip service to it? Well, secondly, notice there are the marks of the reality of repentance. The first is what's already been stated. There is the acknowledgement of sin as sin. He doesn't come to his father and say, I'm going to go to my father and I'm going to say, I've made a big mistake. He doesn't say, you know what, I messed up. He doesn't go to his father and say, well, if you had been more caring to me, if you hadn't sinned against me in this way and that way and the other way, if you hadn't been more diligent in teaching me, then I wouldn't have done this. It's actually sort of your fault. There's no blame shifting. 
There's no willingness to say, Father, you're imperfect, and therefore you did this, that, and the other, which then allowed me to do this, that, and the other. My sister did this. My brother did that. This servant did this to me. What does he say? It's simple. I have sinned against heaven and in your presence. He doesn't add a but. He doesn't add an and. He owns it as sin. This is a fundamental mark of sincerity with reference to repentance. There's a willingness to own completely, personally, entirely his own guilt and corruption. Notice he also isn't merely acknowledging the pain that he's cast upon his father. He's not saying, listen, I'm so sorry for the shame that I've committed. I'm so sorry for the pain that I've inflicted. He's acknowledging the guilt that he has brought to himself. He's acknowledging the wickedness of what he's done. You know, Judas knew something of shame, didn't he? Judas looked at his sin, and in one sense, we could say, though not entirely, he came to himself because he's holding the bag of money and he says, this is wrong. And he throws it into the place that he had received it. But he goes out and hangs himself. Why? Because though he understood he was guilty, though he understood he was shamed, and so on, he didn't come to acknowledge the sin sincerely against God with confession of it unto repentance. Here, the younger son, he resolves, you see it, I will arise and go to my father. This is, in our own language, what is meant sometimes when we say, you need to man up. You need to own your fault. You need to go to the party grieved and talk to them. So often, we satisfy ourselves with going to someone who's not the grieved party and saying, you know what, I've done wrong. Here he goes to the grieved party and he confesses his sin. Yes, preeminently against God, but in your presence as well. When people think, for instance, that the restitution of a sinner and the absolution of their discipline is too much because there's the demand that public sins be repented of and owned publicly in the face of a congregation, they're missing the point of true repentance. True repentance brings one to say, I've sinned against God and in your presence. And when we take public vows and we abuse those vows, we are under obligation. But more than that, as we'll see, we are under the influence of grace that leads us to say, I will own my sin and gladly abase myself. Notice how this articulated. There's the acknowledgement of sin, which is one mark of the reality of repentance. There's secondly, the willingness of abasing himself. He says, verse 21, I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Which is what he resolved to do when he says, I'll go to my father and I'll say, among other things, verse 19, I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. When sinners in scandalous sin stand upon what they deserve from others, you can be sure they're missing true repentance. Because when there's true grip of sin, 
there is face planted, bowing down before those against whom sin has been committed. I'm no more worthy to be counted your son. I am not worthy of the slightest dignity. And though a penitent sinner may go beyond what is required, it is a mark of the sincerity of repentance when there is the basing of ourselves before God. You see this in David. David is first proud and arrogant, right? Nathan comes to him and he says, that man should die. And then, thou art the man. What do you see? You see David faceplant. He falls down and he pens for us one of the richest expressions of confession and repentance. That's repentance. The willingness to abase oneself in the presence of God and the grieved parties. When we don't see that, whatever tears may be shed, whatever words may be spoken, we have no hesitation in saying that's not biblical repentance. But when it is there, brethren, we have a mark of repentance in its reality. There's more here. He also discerns mercy. Our catechism is beautifully articulating this truth when there's the acknowledgement of the sin, the grievous fact of sin, and the apprehension of God's mercy in Christ. He's moved to repent. Notice in verse 17, he comes to himself and he, he thinks, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare and to spare, and I perish with hunger. Implicit in that is this, if my father would give this to his servants, I can come and expect the same. Though again, he has a minor misstep in saying, I'll just be a servant and not come in the full assurance of being a son. Yet he's persuaded that there's mercy in his father. In that his father not only gives to his servants, but gives an abundance to his servants. And so there's a reasoning, there's a little glimmer of the apprehension of mercy from his father that leads him to say, I'm going to go. I'm going to seek this from my father. Not just seeking it from his father, but again, as we've said, secondarily to his owning of his sin and so on. The reality of repentance includes the discernment of God's mercy in such a way that further strengthens the resolve to confess, to abase oneself, and to turn from sin. And so when someone says, well, God's merciful, but there's no confession and abasement of oneself, they've misunderstood God's mercy. This man discerns the mercy of his father and he comes with renewed strength of resolve to confess his sin and to humble himself in his presence. But all of this preeminently leads to that mark which displays all. In verse 20, he arose and came to his father. He left the scene and the activity of sin. He's no longer in the far country. He's no longer feeding upon the filth. He's no longer joined with sin and rebellion. He's not writing a letter to his father and saying, listen, I've, I've deplorably made use of your finances. Would you give me something else? Would you be kind to me? And so on. No. He resolves to depart from his scene of rebellion and go to his father to confess his sin and to ask for mercy. This is the mark of repentance. There's the turning from sin 
onto the path of righteousness. But it's not just onto the path of righteousness, it's onto the God of righteousness. There's turning from idols to the true and living God, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. There is the departing of the paths of sin and its participation to the drawing near unto God and service to His name. And so one can have some feigned and artificial acknowledgement of sin. One can even have some willingness to confess and to abase themselves to some extent and to say God's merciful and He'll forgive and I want to get on with life and so on. But except there is the departing from the scene of sin, there's no repentance. That's what's going on with Judas. Judas doesn't actually depart from his sin. He departs from the shame. He tries to. He tries to escape it. But he never acknowledges before God, Oh God, I've sinned against You. Forgive me my sin. Renew Your work in me. And so on. And he thus takes his own life. If you had interviewed Judas and say, and asked him, Are you sorry for what you've done? There's zero question. He would have said, Most, Do you see what I've done? I've thrown the money back. Are you giving up on that? Well, look, I'm, I'm trying to. But if you were to ask God, did Judas repent? Did Judas confess his sin and turn from his sin? The simple answer is no. He did not. And brethren, when it is that people continue in their foul mouth, with their foul activities, with their sinful courses, whatever their acknowledgement, whatever their outward abasing, whatever their pretended discernment of mercy, we can say this, they are without repentance. This is the reality. This is the preeminent mark. There's a turning from sin unto God. Well, lastly, notice the display of grace that is brought about by repentance. The parable is brief on this point, but clear. It's noted twice. Verse 24, This my son was dead and is alive again. Verse 32, For this thy brother was dead and is alive again. Notice how this is connected. Thy brother was dead. He was lost. He's alive. He's found. There's much that is bound up in this expression. One thing to note is that the impenitent sinner is dead in his sin. The one who is without repentance in sin is dead. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2, that we were dead in trespasses and sins. This is what you see in the younger brother when he's there with smiles on his faces and uh, all manner of rejoicing in his heart, spending his father's inheritance upon drunkenness and adultery and all manner of other sin. He's dead. Now, outwardly, they're alive. They have senses, they have feeling, and they have thought and so on. But spiritually, they're dead. This is what was mentioned earlier. When you see an impenitent sinner, we ought not to say, how is it that they're doing that? We should say, it makes sense that they're doing that because they're dead in their sin. It doesn't excuse what they're doing. It doesn't make them amoral agents. This is the wickedness. They wickedly rebel against God and delight in their being dead in sin. They're dead in sin. They're dead unto truth. And this is the reality of sinners. 
However, notice what's being held forth is this. When one repents, they repent because they've been found. They repent because they've been made alive. It's not the order of they repent and are made alive. This thy brother was lost. When was he lost? When he was in sin. And now is found and alive. When was that? Well, he repented. There's the evidence of it. This is what the apostles discover as the gospel is going forth to the Gentiles. And the statement is, God has granted the Gentiles repentance. It's not that there were some wiser that sort of said, oh, this is a better way. It's not like the Stoics and Epicureans who were there hearing Paul and the majority of the Stoics say, well, this is in accordance to our teaching and so we'll do this. It's that God granted them repentance. And whenever it is you see one who undergoes this change, you see the outworking of God's saving grace. A sinner that repents, repents because they've been found by Christ. You can put all of these together with the previous parables. The woman who loses the coin, the piece of silver, what does she do? She sweeps the house. She seeks diligently till she finds it. When she hath found it, she calleth her friends. What does the man who has 99 sheep or 100 sheep and one goes missing? If he loses one of them, verse 4, he leaves the 90 and 9 in the wilderness and goes after that which is lost until he finds it. When you combine these things together, the point is being made God has sought out this one dead in sin and brought them rationally, yes, to understand by his grace what they've done. But spiritually, He's given them the grace so that they can discern it. This is why Paul makes much of God enlightening our minds. Think of that. Your mind outside of Christ is dark. When you're really in darkness, you can't see. This is the reality of fallen man. This is why men call good evil and evil good. They're blind. If you're in a room that has no light, you can open your eyes as long as you wish, and you'll never see anything. Now, sometimes we're in a room that we say has no light, but there coming from under the door is some light from the hallway, or coming through the shade is some light, and so on. And so we can adjust our eyes and make out little forms. But brethren, remember this. Sinners dead in their sins are blind spiritually. They can't see. They delight in what is wrong, and they despise what is good. But when God gives them grace, they come to themselves and they see. This is what Christ says to Nicodemus. Except a man be born again, he cannot what? He cannot see the kingdom of God. He can't see it. It's not that it's not apparent. It's not that it's not plainly marked out. But their own perceptive ability is ruined by their willful rebellion. And so they don't see it. They can't see it. But what happens to make them see? God gives them life. So they do see. And then, except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. When born again, they both see and enter in. There's the repentance. They're outside of the kingdom. They now see the kingdom and they go into the kingdom. That's repentance. This is the display, in other words, of God's grace. God displays His grace when publicans and sinners, when prostitutes and murderers, when all manner of defiling sinners turn from their sins unto the Lord. That's God's work. Paul says in Ephesians 4, notice how 
he mentions the Ephesians, of course, are um, Gentiles. And he says in Ephesians 4 that uh, you are no longer, verse 17, to walk as other Gentiles walk. Listen to this. In the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over into lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness, but ye have not so learned Christ. When Christ is taught with power and grace unto the soul, what happens? Verse 22, we put off the old way of living, the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and were renewed in the spirit of our mind, that we would put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. There's repentance. God gives us that grace, and grace displays itself through sincere repentance. One is willing to own they've sinned wickedly, scandalously, not just secretly before God, but they're willing even to do what is contrary to the shameful reality of fallen man and go before others and say, I have sinned. There was a dramatic display of this in my childhood when at a former church, when I was a child, there was the meeting place for worship and an outbuilding as well where there were different classes taught and two young men on one evening broke in and defiled that room with all matter of graffiti and foul pollution that ought not to even be mentioned. And it was unknown who it was. Reports were written and so on. Years later, a young man came to the pastor and said, you'll remember years ago that your outbuilding was defiled. I've come to confess I was that one. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against this church. And he came voluntarily to the whole congregation and said, I was the man who did it. Would you forgive me? Brethren, that's because God had given him grace. God had worked in him. He didn't have to be scolded. He didn't have to be forced. Why? Because God had worked in him unto true repentance. What was going on? God had brought one who was dead in sin with all the satanic graffiti that was in that room to be brought to himself to see that he had so sinned against God in the presence of others that he would come and own it before God. Why? Because he was made alive. He was willing to confess because he knew God. He knew the comfort that was in God. He knew the peace which was now his By grace, he had been led unto repentance. Brethren, we ought, of course, to be instructed by this. We, in our lives, have those who are dear to us who are involved in sin. Some, perhaps not scandalous. Others, very scandalous. This instructs us to see what great need they have. And it reminds us that neither you nor I have the efficient power to bring them to repentance. If they are to be brought to repentance, it must be that they are made alive by God's grace. What that should instruct us to do is never cease beseeching God for mercy and grace. And we have great encouragement to do this. Notice the parables now put together. 
you have the one that goes astray. Who is it that goes and seeks that one that's gone astray? It's the one from whom the sheep had strayed. He leaves the ninety and nine. And verse 4, He goes after that which was lost. Who is it that seeks for the coin that's been lost? It's the one from whom it's been lost. The woman had the ten pieces. She lost a piece. So she goes out and sweeps and searches until she finds it. This is the point. We ought to plead with God. God, you seek after this one who's gone astray. If you're to employ me as your mouthpiece, as it were, so do. If you're to employ somebody else, so do. If you're simply to employ words that this one has heard before, so do it. But, oh God, do seek after this one who has gone astray. It does us no good to say, I did pray that. I have prayed that. Because if we truly believe that it is only God that is able to give repentance, so long as that person is in sin, so long will we stand before the throne of grace beseeching God for this mercy. Let us resolve to pray. Let us resolve to be those whom He would use, should He so choose, that we would not, as it were, say, as the world would, you know, careless counsel and so on, but would call them from their sin unto the Lord Jesus Christ. Additionally, by this we can examine our own repentance. Doubtlessly, many, if not all here, would to some extent say they've repented. Well, we can ask, do I see sin rightly? Do I see it as an offense to God and as a stumbling point to others? And if I see it so, am I willing to confess it as such? Do I go to God and say, I've sinned against you? Do we go to the brethren who are aware of our sin and say, I've sinned and created the stumbling block before you? Do we see God's mercy rightly? That God is one who is calling us unto Himself. What a beautiful image is given to the church which is lukewarm and who is in danger of being spewed out as God speaks, Christ speaks, and He says, I stand at the door and knock, and he that openeth unto me, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. Christ stands by the word preached, banging upon the door and saying, open to me. We know that the only way they open is by God giving them life. But it does nothing to neglect the fact or deny the fact that Christ is calling upon us to turn. This tells us something of Christ. Christ is a merciful Savior. He appeals to us and He, as it were, clears the room of objections. We think we stand in a room with all of these obstacles and we say, but what about this? And How am I going to overcome that? And oh, I've sinned too much and too long and too heinously and all these things. And Christ with one arm sweeps it clear and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I stand at the door and knock. I am the one that if any come unto Me, He will have everlasting life. What's Christ doing? He's saying this, I am one who saves. One says it this way, we ought not to reason the enormity of our sin as the excuse as to why God won't save us, but we ought to argue from the enormity of our sin 
to the great reason we have for God to save us. We see that in the Psalms. Pardon mine iniquity. Why? For it is very great. We come not excusing, not downplaying. That's the work of false penitence. True penitence comes and says, here it is. Here's all the display of my wicked transgression. It's so great, there's no hope I have, but that you would forgive me. Do we see and perceive God's mercy to forgive and receive and bless sinners who believe and turn? Does it humble us? Or do we find us rising up again? Sin is confessed secretly to God, but so soon as someone addresses, well, who are you? And that kind of thing. No. If we're humbled, we're willing to say, oh, it's shamefully true. And I acknowledge the same and ask that you would forgive me for causing any scandal to break out in the presence of others. But preeminently, we can ask this. Does it draw us to forsake sin and draw near to God? Because if it does anything less than that, whatever else it is, it's not truly repentance. Well, given these things, finally, there are many here who give sound and clear evidence of God's grace and to repentance. What this ought to do is to lead us to give thanks. Both, if we discern it in ourselves, O oh Lord, it's imperfect, and yet it's sincere in there. I give thanks that You have found me. That though I was dead, You've brought me to life. Though I went astray, You sought me and brought me back. Though I was missing, You searched as it were and found me. We give thanks. But as we see it in others, we can say this, there's the display of God's grace. God be praised that He's at work in my brother, that He's at work in my sister, that He's at work in others beyond our congregation as well. And so we're brought to rejoice with the angels in heaven, which is most appropriate. Sometimes we wonder, don't we, at how much our prayers are imbalanced. We spend so much time petitioning, which is right, we ought to petition, but we have so little by way of thanksgiving. We feel the imbalance in our exercises of prayer. We're ready with, I need this and we need this and help with this. But when we're asked, well, what are you thankful for? We have to sort of pause and think and really work at it. Well, here's something. You see, by God's grace, evidence of someone repenting. You go to God and you cultivate what is here said to be cultivated with propriety. It is meet that we should make merry and be glad. That we're cultivating this. Oh God, thank you that ever such a one in his or her sin has been brought to life. Give me eyes to see the handiwork of God at work in these. And likewise, ought it to lead us to rejoice all our days that though we were dead in our sins, we with our brethren have been made alive and unto what? Not only unto forgiveness, not only unto greater conformity to His will in this life, but unto the enjoyment of His kingdom of righteousness forever. God be praised that there is such a gift of repentance by His grace. Would you stand with me for prayer?